You know, we think about last week's passage after Abram and Sarai's miserable failures in chapter 16. You kind of have to stop for a second and wonder, because there's this long period of silence, you wonder if the covenant is still in place. I mean, they really messed up. They really sinned. The question is, will God keep his promise to Abram? And you know the answer already is yes. It still makes us marvel, doesn't it? God is merciful. God is merciful and faithful and unwavering in his glorious purpose and plan of redemption. He said he'd do it from the beginning, and he's still going to do it. He's the flaming pot and the torch that passed through the animal parts in chapter 15, taking on the responsibility to bring about his covenant promise with Abraham. Abram didn't walk through. God did. He will bring this about. He will bring about his purposes. And that's what we get to see again in a restatement of the covenant this morning in chapter 17 and 18. It will help you to follow along in the Bible, but also on the sermon notes provided. You'll see this theme. God confirms his covenant to Abraham by giving him the sign of circumcision and promising Sarah will have a son. Now I'm going to read the text in three parts as you find them broken up. On the sermon outline, I'll begin with chapter 17, beginning with verses 1 to 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be to God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with money shall be surely be circumcised. So my covenant shall be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. We'll pause there and unpack those verses. There's a lot. This is an expansion of his covenant with Abraham. And by expansion, I don't mean that there are any new promises, really. That's all still bedrock, but we, we see it in greater perspective. 
It's been 13 years since the end of chapter 16. And God Almighty, that's El Shaddai, the first time that appears in Scripture, appears to Abram and he speaks. And he's using covenant language. But this isn't a new and separate covenant with Abram. It's all one Abrahamic covenant that is progressively revealed, meaningly revealed through Abraham's life. So remember, in chapter 12, God made promises to Abram. The promises of a great nation, a great land, to be a blessing, and to have a great name. The great name is sort of the the string that wraps all of the other blessings, promises together. In chapter 15 then, God assures Abram of the promises with a, a covenant ceremony. We see it formalized. God makes an unconditional covenant with Abram to give his offspring this land in Canaan. All the promises have been made, but this installment of the covenant emphasizes the land. It is an unconditional covenant because God, only God, not Abram, passes between the severed animals as a flaming pot and flaming sword, pledging himself to bring his promise about, calling a curse upon himself if he fails to bring about his promise. Now we get to chapter 17, and here God is folding in to this existing covenant. That's like baking language, right? I remember the great British baking show, and they would knead the dough, and they would fold in a little more flour, fold in a little more oil. God's folding into this same covenant an emphasis on the great nation of Abram's offspring with some added detail. And he clarifies the covenant with some conditions for Abraham, as we will see. So God opens with a statement that summarizes this new installment of the existing covenant. He says, I am God Almighty, that's authority, walk before me, that's faith, and be blameless, that's obedience, that I may may make my covenant between me and you, so that's conditional, and may multiply you greatly, that's the promise. And Abram responds by falling on his face before Almighty God in holy reverence. That's the right response. Notice right away that uh, this is a faith-based relationship. We already know that, don't we? When, when Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, it has always been and it must continue then to be a faith-based relationship. That's the relationship. Walking for, before God and being blameless are conditions under the covenant. But they were already conditions under the promise. This is a, this is a, a covenant made with faithful people. It was by faith that Abram believed God and left Ur of the Chaldeans. God has given Abraham a relationship with him based on faith. And it was that that faith that God credited to Abram as righteousness. Abram's not blameless, right? He's not righteous. He's not perfectly obedient. He's a sinner like us. Righteous by faith in the promised seed is Jesus Christ. God accepts Abram's flawed obedience, having been satisfied by Christ's perfect obedience on Abram's behalf. You know this. This is all gospel. The nature of the covenant is the same nature of the relationship. It's based on faith and the promised seed, who is ultimately Jesus Christ. The righteous walk by faith, not by sight. After having his faith counted as righteous by God, Abram has made... Some tremendous mistakes. He's a sinner. And yet, he is covenant faithful as he falls on his face before holy God. And listen to God's covenant promise to Abraham. 
Did you, did you hear it? You'll be a father of a multitude of nations. I've, I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. These are glorious promises. These are unbelievably glorious. If you're not moved by these, we need to recalibrate a little bit. I think overall, we are dumbed down in understanding what is glory and what is not. We think that a 60-second home run is true glory. Now, now it's glory on the field for a time, and it'll be written in a record book. But it's not the glory of nations and kings and a, and a posterity forever. That's glory. We have, we have set our standards and understanding of glory way too low, way too earthly, way too small. This is a glorious promise. Abram wants this promise. We see here the same purposeful promises that God made to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with glory of God. Right? That glory, the initial glory. He's restating it here with Abram. Abram, the man to whom these promises are made and will be kept, will be a great man with a great name. In fact, God changes his name from Abram, meaning exalted father, which is pretty good. Right? Exalted father to Abraham, meaning father of many, father of multitudes. Look at the duration of this glorious promise in verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. That's not just flowery language. It's real language. It's covenant language. An everlasting covenant. It's a forever promise. It applies to generation after generation after generation of Abram's offspring that lasts forever. Then God folds the promise of offspring into the promise of the land. I will give to you and to your offspring after you all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. So Abraham's forever offspring will possess a forever land. Can it get any more glorious than that? Can it get any more glorious than that? Well, it can. Yes, it can. Look again at verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. He will be their God. And then he says again at the end of verse 8, he says, I will be their God. It's not just the glory of an everlasting people living in an everlasting land that God will give to Abraham. The central, the truly glorious promise of the covenant is that God is giving himself to Abraham and his posterity. God is the promise. That's amazing. Because God is glorious. Now let's take a minute to understand again what, what all the typologies point to. You know what a typology is. A typology is a, it's a form of prophecy. Something here points to something there. One current reality points to a future reality. We've been doing this all along. In Genesis, God's promise to Abram of a seed is Isaac. We see that here. And of multiple seed is going to be Israel. But the ultimate fulfillment of that promise, that is a type, is Jesus and the church. So the seed Isaac points to is a type of Christ who is to come. 
And Israel, the descendants of Isaac, points to the church that is to come in Christ. God's promise to Abram of a land is Canaan. We see it here. It'll be some time, but they will take possession of it. And the ultimate promise of that is the new heavens and the new earth. There is a promised place for the people of God. The promised land in the old covenant points to a promise in the new covenant, where we're headed. God's promise to Abram of a great name is Abraham. It's, we, we just read it. He's actually got that one, sort of. He needs all the stuff beneath it, but he's got the name, and the fulfillment of that promise is the name of Abram's ultimate seed. What's his name? His name is Jesus, the name above all names. That's a pretty great name. Yeah, the greatest name. And God's promise to Abraham to be a blessing. You will be a blessing. Which is Israel, who will be a blessing to all the nations. He's picked one nation to radiate the glory of God and to call people unto God from all the other nations around him. But that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who will bring salvation to all who believe in him. As Abram, Abraham serves as prophet, priest, and king to his people, and he does, Jesus, God's appointed prophet, priest, and king over all the earth, is for the glory of God. So we see these types that are pointing to, prophesying of, those things that are to come. So despite Abram and Sarai's disappointing performance in chapter 16, God's primary purpose is still on, and it's moving forward. God's program to cover the dry lands with the glory of God by populating image bearers who reflect his character all over creation is going to be achieved through Abraham's line. The same thing that he was going to do through Adam, he is going to do through Abraham. Even better, he will be their God. Almighty God will be their God. This is, this is the core of the covenant. God is giving them himself. The greatness of the covenant is the glory of God. Remember Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. We've looked at it a couple of times. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and your offspring, who is Christ. So Paul explains to us how all of this points to Christ, the Son of God, who is ours by faith. These are the covenant promises. And then there's these conditions. We saw in verses 1 and 2 that God promises, God's promises require faith and obedience. His promises are made to his faithful and obedient people. Now God adds this requirement. Circumcision is to be the sign of the covenant, a mark upon God's people and a reminder to God's people of his covenant promises, especially that they belong to him. You notice Abraham doesn't have to ask what circumcision is. The mark of the covenant is circumcision. What's that, Lord? He doesn't have to ask. It was already in practice at that time by various peoples, uh, mostly the Egyptians, particularly for their priests, which is kind of interesting uh, since every, every man is going to be circumcised in Israel. It means that there kind of, kind of points ahead to the idea that we are going to be a, a kingdom of priests to our God. You notice that the sign is to be carried by men and not women. That doesn't mean that women are not under the covenant. It just means that the men bore the sign of the covenant. Once Abraham circumcised himself and all the male adults, the primary candidate for circumcision is an eight-day-old baby boy, right? This is what we're picturing. Looks like I'm going to have to use some anatomical terms. 
Because you need to know this and understand its symbolism. We're talking about biology, we're talking about anatomy and nothing else. But every eight-day-old baby boy is born with a tuft of skin that covers the head of his little penis. It covers it. It obscures it. It's concealed. Circumcision is the surgical removal of that tuft of skin. So for Abraham and his physical descendants, physical circumcision represents obedience to the law. Obey this. It's the sign of obedience to the law. Remember when the, when the people received the law from Moses, we read in Exodus chapter 24, verse 3, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken will do. We will obey. Well, circumcision is that sign of obedience. They say they'll obey, but they don't. They don't keep the law. The Apostle Paul explains in Romans 4, in Galatians 5, that they can't keep the law. So the old Abrahamic covenant anticipates something new. It's a type of a new covenant. And physical circumcision anticipates something new. What? What does physical circumcision anticipate? What is it a type of that is to come? Well, we find that in Jeremiah chapter 4. Turn there, because I want you to believe this. Looking at Jeremiah chapter 4, and in verse 4, the Lord declares through the prophet Jeremiah, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Circumcise your hearts. To obtain salvation under the new covenant, you must remove not the foreskin of flesh, but the foreskin of sin that covers your heart. That's why baptism is not a replacement for circumcision. Physical circumcision is a type. Physical circumcision prophesies of spiritual circumcision. Physical circumcision doesn't prophesy of or point to baptism. Physical circumcision prophesies to spiritual circumcision. Circumcision not of the flesh, of the heart. The circumcision of the heart is a metaphor for conversion. Everywhere in Scripture, the circumcision of your heart is to have, is to have conversion, to be, to be redeemed. So baptism is applied to the converted soul to mark the completed work of spiritual circumcision of the heart. Paul expounds on this in Colossians chapter 2, if you want to turn there, follow along. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not, not according to Christ. So there are some who are going back to old traditions, Jewish traditions, the circumcision tradition. For in him, that's Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells. In him, bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Because it's a spiritual circumcision. Not by putting off the foreskin, but by putting off the body of the flesh. That is the, the sinful flesh. 
by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the power, powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the atonement, is the means by which the circumcision becomes real, of, of removing our sin from us and for bringing forgiveness of sin. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We cannot obey the law because sin covers our hearts. It covers our hearts' ability to obey God's law. We cannot love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We cannot love our neighbor as we love ourselves. The only way, that's the law, right? We can't keep the law. The only way for, for the sin that covers our hearts to be removed is, is for the divine surgeon to cut it off. The only way for our hearts to be circumcised by Christ's Spirit through faith. That's the only way. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, not by the law. His praise is not from man, but his praise is from God. So any male, verse 14, who is not circumcised in the flesh was cursed. We're back in Genesis. Cut off from God's people and also from God. Just as the man or woman whose heart is not circumcised of God is not under the new covenant and will not inherit the promised blessing, but will be cut off from God eternally. There's the sanction. You must be under the covenant. You must be under the covenant. So God clarifies this covenant with Abraham, beginning in verse 15. I'll read from here to the end of the chapter. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God said to him, Abram was, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those brought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised. 
with him. Now again, we get some, some greater detail. God char- changes Sarai's name to Sarah. You know, I feel as if for, for weeks now, I, I have to get up every morning and stand in front of the mirror and make myself say Abram instead of Abraham. I just want to say Abraham through, through all the chapters. And, and now we're finally at Abraham, and I can't say it. I keep saying Abram. I'm going to have to retrain myself to say the right name. God changes Sarai's name to Sarah. There's no change in meaning here. It, it's just an older Hebrew rendering of the same name. Perhaps, perhaps it's a little more dignified. Perhaps it goes with Abraham better. And God says twice for emphasis that he will bless Sarah. For the first time in Abraham's story, God says specifically that the son he has promised, Abraham, will come by Sarah. So it makes total sense that God's blessing on Abraham will mirror his blessing on Sarah, and it does. She too shall become nations. From her too, kings of peoples shall come. When Abraham hears that, he, he fumbles just a little bit, doesn't he? he? He bobbles the ball just a little bit here. Now, he's, now listen, he's not laughing so hard that he loses control and falls down laughing out loud in front of God. That's not what we see. Take a closer look. Abraham is doing two things at the same time. God speaks, and Abraham falls on his face in right reverence to God Almighty. But at the same time, inwardly, he laughs to himself. At the same time, inwardly, he thinks to himself, this is impossible. I'm too old to have a son. Sarah's too old to have a son. This is impossible, even if God says it, and I believe it. It just can't happen this way. Isn't it interesting that Abraham thinks that the Ishmael plan might still be a go? If not mistaken, ever hopeful, Abram thinks that the Ishmael plan might be a go. Now, Ishmael's 13 years old, right? This story started, this chapter started 13 years later. They've been hunting and fishing together, he and Ishmael. Abraham's teaching him how to shepherd the flocks and training him up to, to run the household. Right? He's about to be 13. He's about to take on responsibilities in that culture. It's impossible for us to have a son. But here is a son that already lives. And he could be the heir of all your promises, God. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, earlier... God said, no, Eliezer of Damascus will not be the heir to the promise. Now God says, no, Ishmael will not be heir to the promise. Isaac will be heir to the promise. My everlasting covenant is with you, then Isaac, then Isaac's offspring. And Isaac's name means he laughs. Because Abraham laughed. Isaac's name is he laughs, not so that Isaac will grow up remembering that his dad laughed about his being born, but so that Isaac will grow up remembering that nothing is impossible with God because nothing's too hard for the Lord. Remember that Ishmael's name means he hears. And God has heard Abraham's plea that he would bless Ishmael. And Ishmael will be blessed. Ishmael will be fruitful and he will multiply and he will become a mighty nation. But he will not be the heir because Hagar, in bearing Ishmael, dishonored Abraham and is under the curse. Those who dishonor you, 
I will curse. Then Abraham gets this important detail. Sarah will bear Isaac, the heir of the promises, this time next year. So God's open-ended promise that Abraham and Sarah have been struggling with for years now has a due date. He has a name and he has a due date. And when God goes up from Abraham, when God goes out of his presence, Abraham immediately circumcises himself and Ishmael and every male in his household, whether Hebrew or foreigner. You know, this chapter that we're reading is so often referred to in the New Testament. We should probably reflect on at least a couple of things that we find there. First, we notice that Jew and Gentile are admitted to the Abrahamic covenant by the sign of physical circumcision. You notice that, right? It isn't only Jews. It's any Jew, any Gentile in the household. The new covenant, you know, will also admit all peoples whose hearts are circumcised by the Spirit. That God is saving for himself a people from every peoples, tongues, tribes, nations, all of them, by his Spirit through faith. You may be wondering about Ishmael, who's been physically circumcised. He has, right? Well, I said that Ishmael's not going to be heir to the promise, and yet he's, he has the sign of, of the covenant. You may be wondering about Ishmael, who has been physically circumcised, but will not be receiving covenant blessings. God has given Ishmael other blessings. But there is another requirement, another condition, than just physical circumcision to the covenant, isn't there? One must be faithful. Hagar and Ishmael do not walk before God. And they are not interested in being blameless before God. We'll soon see that Hagar finds an Egyptian wife for Ishmael, an idolatress. And they'll settle in the lands east. <laughs> Remember, east is bad. Farther east from Abraham. So Hagar and Ishmael separate themselves from the people of God. And, and they're not interested in the land of God's promise. They're going to go elsewhere. We could say that Ishmael, Ishmael did works, but he did not do faith. In the New Testament, Paul regularly uses the Abrahamic covenant to show that salvation comes by faith and not by works. In Romans 4, Paul shows that it was in Genesis 15 that God counted Abraham righteous by faith in the promise. It was after that, in Genesis 17, that Abraham did the work of circumcision. So Abraham did not obtain righteousness by his works, like receiving wages, Paul says. Rather, Abraham received righteousness, the righteousness of God, by faith. He received it like a gift. It's the argument that Paul makes. And this distinction between salvation by faith and works is argued throughout the New Testament. And the Abrahamic covenant is important in understanding that salvation by faith is a promise. That's salvation. We are children of the promise. We are Abraham's children in Christ. Another good place to go is Jeremiah 33. I'm sorry, 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. Because we get a great understanding of the prophecy, the promise of a new covenant right here. God says through the prophet in chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like 
the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So you see there he's referring back to the law, which really is in the Mosaic covenant, this law that one must do works by. It's not, covenant's not going to be based on that, this new one. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, which is in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that we're looking at. He says, one, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for two, they will all know me. Under the new covenant, the new covenant applies to those who who all know God. They are saved people. They have had their hearts circumcised of sin. And then three, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin No more. You see, the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled not through keeping the law of the Mosaic covenant, not by works, but God will keep his covenant with Abraham by meeting our covenant conditions for us. Here's where where you're troubled just a little bit. The Abrahamic covenant has unconditional elements and conditional elements. The conditional elements are upon us. To walk with God, be blameless, and bear the sign. They point to things. We've already talked about that. But the unconditional element is upon God, who was the flaming pot and the flaming torch that passed through the animal parts. Such that God said, I will bring about my covenant unconditionally. Well, what about these conditions that we have to meet? What about these conditions that we have to meet, walking blamelessly before God, that we can't meet? God who has made the unconditional covenant will enable us to keep the covenant conditions we must so that he might bring about the covenant in truth as he has promised. So when we, when we work the gospel through our lives, we find out that it really is an unconditional covenant. That God has chosen the people and God saves the people and it's all of God. God will keep his covenant with Abraham by meeting our covenant conditions for us. He will, one, put his law within our hearts by his indwelling Holy Spirit so that we can walk with him. We will all know him because he will will circumcise the sin covering our hearts so that we might become blameless by faith. And his seed, Jesus Christ, will bless us with salvation through his sin-atoning death on the cross and his life-giving resurrection from the dead so that we would be his people and he would be our God in this everlasting covenant that will last forever. That's how this works. Go back to Genesis 18 now. We're going to trip into the next chapter. Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. I'll read through verse 15. And the Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks at Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick. Three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. 
Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Kind of a funny place to stop reading this morning, but I think it's a good place. Abraham seems to be having an ordinary afternoon when three men suddenly appear before him. Their sudden appearance tips off Abraham that these are no ordinary men. He senses something special here. We come to know that two of them are angels, we're told later in chapter 19. And the third man, the leader, the spokesperson for the three, is the Lord God himself. So this is another theophany. This is God appearing in human form to Abram. It's not clear that Abram believes this is the Lord at the beginning of the story, but he certainly does at the end. Still, his greeting is really over the top. When we understand this culture, this is, this is way over the top. You remember the, remember the father of the prodigal son, how he runs down the street so undignified to his son. Well, well, Abraham's running. Abraham's no slouch. Abraham is a prophet, priest, and king to his people. Abraham is a wealthy, propertied man. And it would be undignified for him to run and have his gown flopping up and showing his lower leg, all of these things. He runs to them, and he bows down to them, and he begs to offer them hospitality. Please, let me feed you. Please, come sit under my tree and and let me offer you refreshment. Abraham's offering of a humble morsel turns into a lavish feast. uh, Have a little bread and water, and he comes back with meat, fresh meat, and curds. What a delicacy in the desert, in the wilderness. I don't know why Abraham does that. But the result is appropriate. This, this, just, this, this story starts out and it just builds into a, a, an offering that's right, that's appropriate for the Lord, that he should have this kind of a meal. Then Abraham stands by to serve his, his honored guests as they eat. I mean, it's, it's, you know, hi, I'm Abraham. I'll be serving you today. And uh, glad to have you with us. I'll be taking care of you. And he stands there and attends to them. This, this great man in his own right earthly attends to the Lord, and the Lord eats. The Lord eats. Verses 1 to 8, I mean, this is a pretty elaborate story. It's a pretty elaborate lead-in to just verses 9 to 15, but they are actually the lead-in not only for the next few verses, but for the next couple of chapters. So as the Lord comes with these two angels, this is kind of a setup for, for several stories that are to come, even after what we're looking at today. We're just going to look at the account about Sarah. Well, Sarah laughs at the Lord's promise of a baby. It's what sticks out to us. There's no, there's no real new information here, is there? But there are some neat features that point us to, 
to one of these guests being the Lord. There's, he already knows Sarah's name. How does, how does this stranger know Abraham's wife's name? Sarah's, Sarah's hidden in the tent behind the Lord out of his field of vision. Sarah laughs and speaks to herself just as Abraham did. But the Lord, but the Lord knows her thoughts. The Lord knows it all. Everything the Lord said to Abraham in chapter 17, he now says to Sarah. All of the same impossibilities are still in place. They're too old. Sarah's physically past childbearing ability. Just as Abraham laughed, Sarah laughs. And still, God repeats that Sarah will have a son this time next year. He said it three times. And then there's this little tense exchange at the end right? Yeah, we should pay attention to that little tense exchange. Sarah laughs at the Lord's declaration that she will have a son because it's physically impossible. Yeah, these two ju- just don't compute. These two just, they can't hit the equal sign. They just, don't may- they just don't line up. And the Lord confronts her disbelief. And she lies. She denies to the Lord's face that she laughed. And we get to observe this. But the Lord knows that she laughed. And he doesn't let her get away with it. He says, you know you laughed. I know you laughed. And now you know I know you laughed. And he leaves it there. In a year's time, she'll know the truth. You know, we've been looking at the very big picture level of God's covenant that he, he will do what is impossible so that Abraham and Sarah will conceive and have a son Isaac. And God will send his own son Jesus to be the only blessing of salvation to all who believe in him by faith to fulfill his covenant of glory. We've been looking at those, those big picture things, but let's, just, let's come down just to a minute to this personal level, this personal insight that we have. Look at Sarah's foolishness. Look at Sarah's pride. I'm not going to admit that I, I did that. She thinks it makes total sense. She thinks it makes total sense to doubt Almighty God. That's how he introduced himself in this chapter. El Shaddai. She thinks it makes total sense to doubt Almighty God's ability. And she thinks it's in her best interest to deny that she did. Do you see how foolish she looks? Now don't we look foolish. Now don't we look foolish when we doubt Almighty God. And don't we look ugly. Just ugly when we lie to him about what we're really thinking. Now, I can at least understand not wanting to admit my sin to Almighty God. I get that. I get that the lies are the cover-up. It's wrong, but I get why. Because as sinners, we all justify ourselves. We all say that we're fine. We want to put the circumcision cover back on our sin and pretend to be righteous. I get that. What makes no sense at all 
is the effort to not believe God's promises of blessing. I don't get it. God comes to offer unbelievable blessing. Why doubt that? Why doubt that of Almighty God? Why do we reject blessing? Why would we reject a blessing specifically from God who is Almighty and can bring it about? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Not that. Now, we have to be careful. You don't want to misuse this verse. You probably have already. I probably have already. But make sure that that's in the past. We don't want to misuse this verse. It does not mean that you can ask God for anything you want and he'll do it for you. Because he could. You can't lift this verse out of its context and apply it to anything that you want. This true statement is in the context of covenant, the context of one particular promised son who is given by Almighty God. So there is the specific promise that applies to Sarah only at a particular time and in a particular place. This time next year you'll have a son. It's very specific and it does not apply to any other person. Not to you. It's not impossible for God to bring about his promise of a son to Sarah. That's what we have in the text. But it has a specific covenantal implication as well. It is not impossible for God to send his son into the world in the fullness of time to be the blessing of salvation by faith which is the fulfillment of this son Isaac. So he, God's son Jesus, is a promise as well. It's not too difficult for God to deliver Jesus, for him to humble himself and come down to earth and to serve in this way. Jesus Christ is Abraham's seed who saves us to walk with God and to make us righteous as he is righteous. Catch those two things, right? Jesus has come the Son of God, so that we would walk with Him and that we would become righteous or blameless as He's blameless. These are the covenant re, uh, requirements at the very beginning of chapter 17 and Jesus fulfills them for us. So we should be looking at those. These things are things that are not too difficult for God to do, but I wonder if you believe that. Just as this covenant is to steer and encourage Abraham and Sarah to faithful, to faith and to faithful living, it needs to do the same for us this morning. Very simply, I'll begin here. Dear unbeliever, because you do not believe by faith in the salvation that is promised in Christ, you are outside of God's blessing and under God's curse because of your sin against him. That is your current state. You, like Ishmael, may be experiencing good things in life. It is God's providential grace that you have life and that you enjoy life and enjoy his creation, but when this life ends, as it does for every single human being, then comes the judgment. The judgment as to whether or not you have the covenant sign of a circumcised heart. 
And so I beg you, turn to Jesus, the divine surgeon who cuts away the sin from the sinner's heart. Turn to Jesus, the promised Son of God. Believe in Him and have your sin cut away by His death on the cross in your place. Receive the everlasting life that He gives through His resurrection from the dead. You are under the deserved curse of God upon your sin. He is offering you forgiveness and life and glory. Don't not believe in promises like that. Believe in those promises that he can give because he is almighty God. Life is his to give. And no one can stop him from giving it to all who will walk in Christ by faith. And you, dear believers, will you be blameless before God? Will you uphold the covenant by persevering in faith? You have been declared righteous by faith. Does your ongoing sin ever discourage you? I wonder if you're like Sarah, snickering behind the tent in disbelief that God would make someone that you think is unrighteous as you, righteous like his son. He hears your thoughts just as well as he sees your actions. Don't lie to him. How foolish you are when you try to cover up your sin just to make yourself feel better for a little while. Would you decircumcise your heart with lies when he knows the truth already? His purpose in your life is to bless you and to forgive your sins. He has given you His Word and His Spirit to help you. By covenant promise, He has already given you His Son for your salvation. Won't you put away your sin and move towards Christ's likeness? That which He is working in you anyway? If you feel that being blameless is too hard for you, remember that it is not too hard for Him who works in you. Believe his promise to make you blameless. Walk in greater obedience to him. And see if you aren't more Christ-like this time next year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your unstoppable covenant that you will bless sinners by your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for His work on our behalf. Thank you for His sacrifice on our behalf that we might live and go free from the punishment upon our sin which you visited upon Him. Thank you for always and ever keeping your promise through Christ. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.